Well, in just a few days, many of us are going to be gathering with family, huddling around a tree. My, my children have already asked to open presents. Uh, but many of us are going to be doing that, uh, gathering with family, huddling around a tree, opening presents, enjoying good company and material gifts. I mean, Christmas can be a very enjoyable time. But let's be honest. Can't it also be a bit disappointing as well? Instead of getting that Apple iPad Air you've been drooling over, you get socks. Black socks. Or maybe you do get that thing that you really are dying to have. You know, eventually that thing is going to disappoint you. That iPad Air, you know, once that screen cracks and then that thing that you so dream of swiping over now becomes a threat to your fingers. That thing disappoints you. For those of you who aren't so materially driven, you who are happy to get black socks, maybe you are more relationally driven, right? So what you look forward to is the gathering of family. But this too can let you down. It might not be the broken stuff that gets to you as much as it is the broken relationships. Maybe you know what it's like to have that gift given to you by the one that you love simply, you know, once again has been given again, not from a heart of love, but from from some sort of husbandly obligation. Or maybe you desperately want all of your family together, wanting your family to be what it once was. But the empty place settings at the table simply reflect a little bit of the emptiness of your very own heart. Or maybe, you know what, maybe you'll have a great time at Christmas. Fantastic, you'll be soaring. Chestnut praline lattes, presents, family, turkey. Everybody's there, but you know what, when they leave, maybe December 26th, they always seem to take a little bit of your joy with them. Merry Christmas. Uh, I am not intentionally trying to bring you down four days before Christmas. That is not my intention. I'm just stating what reality is for a significant amount of people. And we don't want to forget about that significant amount of people. And my guess is that for some of you even, this might describe you to some degree. I'm not going to name some of you or your hurts. You know, that's not going to be, that's going to hit a little bit too close for home and inappropriate here in this setting. But at Biola, for example, some of my students, one of my students was diagnosed with leukemia. 19-year-old gal, diagnosed with leukemia right before Thanksgiving. What's the holidays like for someone like that, who now presently is trying to wrestle with what it means to trust in Jesus, even in the midst of this kind of difficulty? At 19 years old, nobody expects to get cancer when they're 19. I got another student. This will be his first Christmas with his mom and family since his father committed suicide. What is that like? For him to return back to his family and to experience gathering around the tree now minus, you know, the one who's been leading them for 20 years of life, 18 years of life. There's a lot of hurting people out there, but yet there are also a lot of hurting people in here. And our hurts reflect broken dreams disappointed hopes, right? 
Our hurts reflect broken dreams and disappointed hopes. But this cycle, if you guys are familiar with disappointments, uh, broken dreams, this cycle of getting our hopes up, let's say in people, or even in material things, whatever it is that you're putting your hope in, uh, this cycle of getting your hopes up and then having them let down is actually really instructive, isn't it? It's really instructive. It's evidence that nothing in this world is resilient enough, powerful enough to bear the weight of all of your hopes. Nothing in this world is resilient enough or powerful enough to bear the weight of all of your hopes. And I think people realize that. I think people realize this. And and I'm guessing some of your friends do too. Maybe this is you. Some pretend that hope just doesn't exist. So this is the person who says, I'll just have no expectations to begin with. Therefore, I'm never going to get hurt. And I know people who are wanting to enter into marriage with these no expectations expectations. And that just doesn't work. I mean, marriage in and of itself, (laughs) you know, the one who's committing himself to marriage is pledging himself to love. He's saying, I'm having that expectation on me and I want you to have that expectation. I want you to be confident in my love. And expect it. Expect me to turn up and love you. There's no expectations kind of worldview. It just doesn't hold up. It doesn't make sense of life. A kind of drastic expectation, you know, you can take the very sad slaughter of 150 Pakistani children that happened by the Taliban. I mean, whoever turns on the news and says, yeah, there we go again. I had no expectations for those humans anyways. Actually, when we turn on the news and we see something like that, this devastation, it ought to make us hurt. It ought to make, there ought to be some certain type of moral outrage present (coughs) because we actually do have expectations for certain types of people, all types of people, in fact. This life of no expectations makes for a miserable and, frankly, a dangerous life. But expectations and hopes are not bad. So if you guys have expectations in relation to Christmas, they are not bad. In fact, they are good. But Scripture tells us they they ought to be laid upon the one powerful enough to bear those hopes. Scripture tells us that our hopes ought to be laid upon the one powerful enough to bear those hopes. So a question for you today is, what is that thing or person that you have all your hopes laid upon? That one thing that you really want to achieve or see happen, whether it's a relationship, people getting back together, a son who is wandering, finally come back, maybe yourself having children, whatever that thing is, that's the thing that you think will bring deliverance to your life, whether it be grades or relationships or material gain. That's that thing that you think will bring deliverance to your life. But as Christians, we, Christians who believe in the Bible, we believe that the only thing, the only person resilient enough to bear those hopes is Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. And that's what really Christmas is about. Jesus Christ is the only person resilient enough to bear all of those hopes. And today's passage points directly to him. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, and we focus on verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. So I want you to know, if you're visiting with us, 
I want you to know that you can be confident in hope if the object that you're hoping in is strong. So if the object is strong, so goes your hope. If the object's not very strong, a relationship, material gain, an iPad, whatever, your hope isn't very strong. So here we see that Jesus Christ is this impenetrable person and therefore your hope can be equally as strong. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. You can basically open up your Bible right to the middle and you'll go there. This is a very famous Old Testament passage. It's a prophecy which speaks about the birth of Jesus Christ. And in this passage, God redirects His people's hopes to Himself. What had happened was that the people had abandoned God. They had trusted, actually, in everyone but God. So they had laid up their hopes in everything but their very Creator. And they were experiencing, too, this letdown, this gloom, this darkness. But what's beautiful here, as God sends Isaiah to deliver a message, this word of promise, is that God moves in grace and delivers. And He gives them this word of promise. Look there, Isaiah chapter 9. I'll read 1 to 7, actually, for context. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the big idea here is in our failed hopes, where earthly things and people have not delivered, we can in fact know deliverance in Christ because of his perfect reign and the blessings of his kingship. So basically, deliverance is found in Christ because of his perfect reign and the blessings of his kingship. Let's look at the deliverance that comes in Christ. God's Old Testament people here were in deep trouble. In chapter 9, you hear, in 1 to 7, you hear those themes of darkness, right? Actually, go ahead and look at verse uh, chapter 8, verse 22. And you see this re refrain of darkness, darkness, darkness. And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick 
darkness. So these people here, they are in trouble. They are in this darkness. And the reason why they're in darkness is simply because of sin. So if you turn to Isaiah chapter 1 here, you have an excellent summary of really the whole entire book and really the state of man's condition as they've sinned against God. Look there in verses 2 to 4. Here the people have broken their covenant with their very own maker. For some reason they think that they're better off sort of trusting in themselves or in other things other than the very one who made them. Verse 2, the children that God reared and brought up. So that's like tenderly fatherly language, right? The children that this father brought up have rebelled against him. And God's indictment is stinging here. Uh, It says there, the ox knows its owner. Look, even an animal, this silly animal knows its owner. And the donkey knows his master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And for a summary, you can go to the middle of verse 4. You see there, they have, what have they done? They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. So the way in which that they had done that is that they had laid up their hopes in all these different things. So some of their kings were encouraging people to trust in idols and not God. They had, uh, they were, some of the kings had encouraged them to make pacts and covenants with other nations. I mean, pagan nations that clearly abandoned God. And And the kings of Israel saying, look, it's better to align ourselves and ally ourselves with the pagan nations instead of God, our very own creator. And then at other times too, Isaiah, he, he, or God himself through Isaiah, brings the indictment that they've trusted in themselves and not God. They're making a mess of their lives by hoping in all the other things, only to have their hopes let down. All these worldly things, only to, let their, only to have their hopes be let down. But God in his grace sends this prophet a God-given prophet with a God-given message of hope. We're like that. We're like uh, Israel too, aren't we? We might not be covenanting with other nations, but we certainly turn to other things to find significance, right? Uh, And meaning, deliverance. Many of us don't have uh, physical idols, but yeah, we do have functional idols, right? Functional idols. Things that aren't maybe, you know, things that we don't bow down to, but yet things we worship, so to speak. And all the while, in trusting in all these different things, we do not trust our creator and maker. So we worship functional gods and idols a lot more than we realize. So some of you this season, even now, might be a bit depressed, knowing that your life doesn't look like the way that you envisioned it would, right? Maybe you lack the money to buy your kids whatever you want. Maybe you lack the finances to provide for your wife the things that she would like. Maybe you lack a spouse. The children, maybe, that you pine for. And not having these things makes you feel, for some reason, very empty. And maybe going to that Christmas party once again that you go to every single year and you know your relative who... Uh, always criticizes you. Maybe she's going to say once again, you know, where is your husband? How come you're not doing certain things? And therefore you are reminded all the more of your very own emptiness. I mean, that's a functional idol. 
I remember one guy talking about his functional idol as a child. Really what it was was status and fitting in. So basically he feared man. And what that looked like practically was that he wanted to have the coolest shoes. I'm not thinking about anybody here in this room. <laughs> um, although I know some of you do, guys do like cool shoes. Uh, this man, he put all of his hopes in really status and fitting in, fitting in with friendships and stuff. And so he needed the coolest shoes. And he said that he was glad that the bullies on the playground never found out what his functional idol was. Because then all they would have to do was rob him of his shoes to strip him of his significance. So easy. And so as he was reflecting this, after he was converted, he was glad that these bullies never found out what his functional idol was. Remove shoes, which equaled status, and you cripple the man. That's a functional idol. For us, for you, that might be relationships, money, status, grades, Ability, looks. Remove any of these things and it sends us into darkness. It sends us into gloom. And then even as we reflect on our situation, the very fact that we're worshiping and pining for these things already actually reveals that we are in darkness, in gloom, because we're putting our hope in something that ultimately isn't very strong. We're already in gloom. For the nation of Israel, it was trusting in themselves, trusting in idols, trusting in the nations around them, and not God. But deliverance, here in chapter 9, deliverance comes through what? You guys go back to Isaiah chapter 9. And you see so clearly what deliverance is in here, okay? The people are walking in gloom because of their sin, their rejection of God. They've abandoned, they've forsaken God, their very own creator. They're in darkness, they're in gloom. In in chapter 8, verse 22, three types, you know, different types of gloom. But yet, in verse 3, it's interesting, isn't it? All of a sudden, it goes from gloom to personality. Deliverance comes in the you. You have multiplied the nation. You have brought joy, and so we can rejoice with joy. Here, deliverance is in God, his very own self. He is the one who brings light. That's why we read John chapter 1. Because Jesus came into the darkness and he is the light. Deliverance is in God. And that's the emphasis here. He is the one who moves to save. He is the one who gives grace. And in this case, it is his God-given son. You know, the Bible says that man earns for himself gloom and darkness because we have sinned against our very own maker. And this happened in the beginning of scripture where Adam and Eve rejected God's rule, his kingship over him. He's a God of peace. And yet Adam and Eve decided that they themselves would try and make it on their own. Establish a peace, a peaceable community apart from God. How exactly they thought they could do it, I don't know. But I know my sin, I know my own heart and my sin well enough to know that, oh, I too desire autonomy from God, my creator. But God in his grace sends the light. John 1 verse 3, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And he was given to free free, free sinners from their darkness. I mean, apart from God's grace, 
Apart from the you in, in Isaiah chapter 9 here, people remain stuck in the cycle of hoping in the wrong things only to have them let us down. It's why to some the holidays are simply unbearable. It's the annual reminder that something is wrong with your hopes and the things that you place your hope in. But again, but again by God's grace, he interrupts this cycle right here in Isaiah chapter 9. He sends Isaiah, God-given man with a God-given message, and interrupts this cycle of fallen hopes in order that we might hope in the real thing, a true hope. And there is deliverance in Jesus Christ. How does Jesus Christ deliver? We can look at the, the second half of our main sentence here. He delivers through his perfect reign and the blessings of his kingship. He delivers through his perfect reign and the blessings of his kingship. The Israelites needed a new kingship. They needed one to lead where they could not, to do for them what they could not do on their own, and we too need the same, don't we? And our very lives are testimonies to that. So you can take like Christmas, for example. I mean, how many of us are scrambling around just to take care of like administrative details about how we are to decorate our house or what types of gifts we are to give other people? We can barely keep that in order. And this actually points to a larger fact, right? That not only do we find disorder in the things that we have around us, like the mundane things, but actually the the disorder actually goes to the core of our very own beings. I mean, we can't take care of administrative stuff like how to put lights up on our houses or we're scrambling to do that. Imagine what we do then with the the, the most important things of our lives. Sin has ruined all of our relationships. That's why we need a new kingship. We Sin messes up our relationship with ourselves, so we ruin ourselves, so to speak. We ruin our relationships with one another. Not only that, but we ruin the relation, our relationship, relationship with the world. You think of all the ecological things that, that come out of a result, let's say, for man's greed. And most importantly... We ruin our relationship with God because of sin. We distance ourselves. I mean, God our Father draws near to us and we say, I don't really care. Buzz off. I'm going to pursue things my very own way. And the Bible says that we earn for ourselves this gloom and this darkness, which ultimately is judgment in hell. So if our sin is the cause of all of this broken relationships, we therefore need one, right, who's going to restore everything that we messed up. And that alone comes through Jesus Christ, who is the truth and the light and whose ways are just and faithful. I mean, this is a mark of his government. In short, we need God himself to right our wrongs, the one who alone reigns in perfection. So you look at the words used to describe Christ's reign in Isaiah uh, 6 and 7 there. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So there, it's like his, his empire is going to continue to expand. But here it's almost like his reign expands not by the sword or by his people taking up clubs and swords and guns and weapons. But here, actually, his kingdom expands, it, it almost reads, through peace. It's through his peace. He goes on justice and with righteousness. Those things, are, those things mark his throne, his administration. From this time forth and forevermore. Beautiful language, isn't it? 
solid hope presently and then also into the future. All because this child, this son, is given. If such a king exists and this king is Christ, which of course for me as a Christian I believe that it is, if such or that he is the king, if such a king exists and this king is Christ, who is marked in terms of his rulership by justice and righteousness and peace, everlasting peace, why would we not want to give our lives over to him to govern? Right? If he does exist, which of course I think he does, why would we not submit ourselves and throw ourselves and say, govern my lives, please, because you know what's best. You are my maker, my creator. You are the one through whom I was created, and you are the one for whom I was created. And so I therefore surrender my life to you. You are the only king worthy of worship, and so I give myself to you. Why would I choose to govern my own life if there presently is right now a perfect king whose reign is perfect and who showers blessings through his kingship? In the passage, did you notice what the blessings were? If you look at 6 and 7, you think, where, where exactly are those blessings? You guys notice there? I mean, there's great blessings, but it is wonderful that in the gloom, the blessings are all wrapped up in the person. It's fantastic, isn't it? Okay, So you got gloom and darkness thrust into gloom because they're looking at their very own selves. But then here you have the introduction of a son given into this darkness as he is light and all of those blessings are wrapped up in who this person is wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father the prince of peace you know majority culture today in america they don't use names like they did in the biblical times uh you know here the name conveys something about a child's character so Jesus, for example, basically means God is the one who saves. Here we're given all these beautiful names here, powerful names that tell us something of the nature of Christ and something of the nature of our hope because he is the object of our hope. He, he is the wonderful counselor. Another way to put this is like a wonder counselor or you could even say a supernatural counselor. Always speaking wisdom because he is the wisdom of God. I mean, some of you all are counselors, actually, working in schools, working in hospitals. But, you know, there are times when we struggle to give counsel to one another or even to counsel ourselves. But this son right here is the wonder counselor, the very wisdom of God given to us to know how we ought to order our lives. I mean, how significant would that have been for Israel who out of fear was throwing themselves at the other nations around them, Assyria and then Babylon. They felt the pressure because of fear to ally themselves with other people, other nations. And then the king himself, you know, he would draw from uh, his, let's say, political cabinet. He'd go and seek wisdom from everybody else. It's what the presidents do today. But this king here, unlimited in wisdom, the supernatural counselor, the wonder counselor. He needs no political advisors because he has it all. Our wisdom is incredibly limited. Again, maybe you struggled figuring out, uh, we're thinking about the mundane here, okay? Maybe you struggled, what should I give my loved one? 
to express my love. And that maybe some of you guys who might be more self-reflective, you know, you mull the question over and over and over, I need the perfect gift to give my loved one. Even something like that, we fail in terms of possessing the wisdom to assess the situation and then actually taking steps uh, to express one's care and love. But yet God himself knows exactly what we need and so he gives us. He sees the gloom, he sees the situation, he sees the people he desires to love and he moves in action in the right way. If we lack wisdom on such trivial things leading to inaction or maybe we act too quickly, imagine how off we are on the most important things like who we are to live for who we place our hope in. Thank God that even though we're not very clear on our wisdom at times, thank God Jesus is so clear. He just comes preaching the gospel of good news and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So clear. First words of Jesus in in the gospel of Mark. And there he's just pointing people to the wisdom found in himself. He is the answer, the given son, the child to be born. He says in Matthew 11, again, his wisdom is so clear. He says, you come to me. You who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. I, Jesus says of himself, will give you rest if you come to me. He is the wonder counselor and the answers are always found in him. He is also known as the mighty God. Here, this is picking up some of this battle language. It talks about the, uh, in verse 4 of chapter 9, the day of Midian. He's talking about a story there that was, re- he's referring to a story back in Judges chapter 6 and 7 where this battle happens and God breaks into space-time history to move and win victory for the people. So here he's picking up this theme of mighty God. He's God the warrior, the deliverer. But this, has, this is an identity marker, not only in the fact that this is a God who fights for his people and for his plans, but that he is God himself come to rescue his people. So what do the angels say when Christ is born? You know, the angels, uh, they, they are said to want to look into the plan of redemption in God. So you can imagine the angels, just like us, are sort of waiting. What will God do next? They long to look into the plan of God. And so when Christ is born, you have the heavenly host sort of looking on saying, ah, this is the plan. Christ, the son is born. And in Luke 2.14, they break out into chorus, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. This heavenly chorus breaks into the plan of redemption as God moves once again, not only in the day of Midian, but in a greater deliverance in sending his son to deliver sinners from their sin. And so what do the Gentiles say in Matthew 2? The wise men, they say, we must go and worship him. So here it's so obvious that this hope that we can have is not just for Israel, the ethnic people of Israel, but it's actually for the Gentiles, which is why actually in in chapter 9, verse 1, at the end it refers to the Galilee of the nations. Glorious is the way. In the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The last two names, here we're just looking at the object of our hope here. Wonder Counselor, Wonderful Counselor. 
He is mighty God. The last two names here, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. You know, here God is further explaining the benefits, the conditions of His kingship in His reign. So when it speaks about Him being an everlasting Father, there you're thinking that, uh, we ought to think that God now engages not only in a warrior-like way, but in a very fatherly way. He's not the tyrant who comes and reigns and establishes his rule, disconnected from the hearts of his people. No, he actually fathers them in his rescuing of them. He loves them. He moves towards them like a father does towards his lost son. (coughs) He is the prince of peace. He is an ambassador of peace, the one who represents all peace. In fact, we we already looked at the fact that his peace is everlasting. So you see how... Christ is our answer to those, to us who have wandered away from God. The giving of this Son is our answer for those who have wandered into darkness because of our sin. And deliverance is found in Him and Him alone. He alone is resilient enough to bear the weight of your hopes. Do you long for a relationship? Do you long for significance? you know that you're designed to find significance in your maker? Do you trust in material things like money and security? Do you long to be fulfilled by these things? And maybe you see yourself see a pattern of, you know, you just look at your credit cards. If you are in severe credit card debt, it probably uh, resembles the fact that you are wanting fulfillment in material things. But why, hope, why put your hope in something that is bound for the landfill even before you buy it. The thing that we, we oftentimes hope in, material things, those things are uh, bound for the landfill even before we buy it. Just shows how strong those things are and reveals how wimpy our hopes are. Friends, put your hope in Christ, the Lord and Savior, whose value never diminishes. Never diminishes. In this sun, we go from darkness to deliverance where we experience true wisdom found in jesus we see his might god come in the flesh we see love and we see peace in him as as king but you know we haven't talked about yet we haven't talked about his death frankly preaching about his birth must it must take us towards his death it has to and you know there are some people i'm sure as you guys have been speaking to uh, people who are unfamiliar with Christianity, there are some people who sit, look at this Isaiah chapter 9 prophecy and they say, this is not to be believed in. Even if you are to claim that Christ is the king, you know, he didn't take an earthly position as a king. Instead, he processed to a cross where he was mocked as a king. And that's the very reason why he died, because he claimed to be a king. And what did that turn out for him? Well, to answer that, we've got to turn to another part of Isaiah that speaks directly of Christ's death. So turn to Isaiah chapter 53. The reality is the kingship Christ displays is fully displayed actually through his suffering. Isaiah chapter 53. Really it's the entire chapter that speaks of this this so-called suffering servant here. The one that is to come. It sheds more identity on who this son is that was given in Isaiah chapter 9. And this gets to why God gave his son. 
So Isaiah chapter 9 is talking about that God would give his son. Isaiah chapter 53 gets to why God gave his son. Look at verse 4. We'll just look at a few verses here. Surely he has borne our griefs. You see that there? He bears our griefs. That's what he's supposed to do in his coming. He, he, he carries our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So while he does something for us, he is afflicted by God. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see that there, the, the him, our, the he, our. He's, a, he's our substitute here. It's very clear. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And on him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So we are beneficiaries even though he takes on our punishment. And with his wounds, we are healed. In verse 6, he's so clear. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've wandered away. We've trusted in things that aren't God. We've turned away everyone to his own way, as if that were actually wise. And the Lord has laid on him. It doesn't say us. It ought to say us, right? That's what, how it would naturally read. On us the Lord has laid. But it doesn't say that. It says on him. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. So at the beginning of Isaiah, this deliverer is a son. He's a king. By the close, the close end to Isaiah, now we see that this king delivers because he suffers as a servant. He is a king, yet he displays how mighty he is in his reign of peace by pacifying our very own hearts as he dies on the cross for our sins. That's why Christ came. Even though God knew that we had sinned and gone astray from him, yet he offers deliverance, all because of grace, his mercy, his love, deliverance from sin and judgment, as he gave his only son to die on the cross and to die where we should have. He bears the wrath that we should have borne so that those who would repent and believe would be freed to new life drawn out of darkness and into his marvelous light, the kingdom of his son. Our gloom is turned to joy on account of God's grace and mercy to sinners and everyone, once again, who would ever look to him and believe. Though he rightfully rules, yet he chooses not to punish us, but he chooses to offer salvation through Jesus Christ through the very sufferings of this son. That's why God gave his son. So if we're going to think about Christmas, that's your answer. Why traditionally Christians have celebrated this thing called Christmas. God gave his son so that he might die and then be raised again to win salvation and forgiveness for everyone who would ever follow him. That's what the entire Bible is about. And you see how here Isaiah, God, God gives the people Isaiah to redirect their hopes to God himself. That's the same thing with the whole entire scriptures. We have earned for ourselves judgment, but God sends Christ to direct all eyes to his very own self. That's why Christians celebrate Christmas. So when you gather around the tree to legitimately enjoy family, that's a good thing. 
to legitimately enjoy family, to give thanks to the Lord for the families that the Lord has given to you, the guardians the Lord has given to you. As you open gifts and receive material things and rejoice possibly in giving it to others, here we ought to be pointed to the greatest gift of Jesus Christ. Because in it, God is expressing, showing us his love, grace, and mercy by redirecting our eyes to the one that saves. Listen here to some passages that speak on why Christ came. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10 Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew 9.13 Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 Jesus came that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death. The one who is a warrior, who defeats Satan and death and sin in his death and resurrection. And all of this God does because he loves, and so he saves. See, the, the end there, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, it says that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this salvation for sinners. There, that's a zeal that a husband have towards his wife. That's a love that he has towards his wife, a jealous man in the best sense of the word. Because a God who is perfectly pure and who loves the perfect things and holy things, he's going to be jealous for those things. He's going to say, no, you stay away because I'm jealous for my bride. I want them to be holy and perfect and love the good things. And I don't want them to be stained by evil. And so he zealously gives us his spirit to cleanse us and to sanctify us. He does these things. He sends his son. Jesus Christ lives a perfect life. He heads to the cross. He dies the death that we should have. He's raised to new life because he loves us. So friends, if you are looking to lay your hopes in something, someone right now over this Christmas time, lay them up in the one through whom you were created. Lay them up in the one for whom you were created. The very one who sustains you now, who upholds the universe with the power of his word, the Bible says. Why trust in things that aren't impenetrable, that aren't everlasting? Why would you choose to have a shaky hope? Because your hope is only as strong as the object of your hope. But friends, Jesus Christ is strong, the mighty God who came to save. The Bible says that everyone, no matter what, how much money they have, no matter what ethnicity they come from, no matter what background, how much education, what your grades are, no matter how you look, the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're visiting with us today, let me encourage you to trust in this Jesus who died on the cross for sins. Repent of your sins and believe.